0: You're probably not as excited because I think I, I looked at the track record I preached for 44 minutes last week and so yeah, it's exciting. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize it was going so long, but when I start talking about you know money, that gets me excited. So I was preaching a long time. So I knew that was going to be the one week to really
1: go long you like that.
0: When I was a freshman in college, I'm gonna give you a little peek on the inside here, when I was a freshman in college. Uh, I switched rooms three times. So, first I was on the engineering floor, and then I realized I'm not smart enough to be an engineer. When you change your major, they make you change your room. So, um, I changed my room. I switched to another room. Uh, In that room, uh, Katrina hit that year. I got a student who was supposed to go to Tulane, came to be my roommate. And so I was there for a little bit, and he came to be my roommate, and uh, he wasn't easy to live with, or I wasn't, or something. So I moved out of there. I moved into another building. I got a roommate. He was, at the time, this stone ancient. He was 25. He was a non-traditional student. I was like, I'm not rooming with this oldie. And um, so then I switched from there, and the last one, I, I rode it out through the end. Um, so I switched rooms. I don't remember if that was for four, but I did a lot. Uh, my freshman year, I switched majors four times um, engineering, English, business management with a human resources emphasis, because I don't know what that was. <laughs> then business management with a whatever the other emphasis is. And then, uh, so that was four times, I think. And then the next year, I switched again, and I stuck with that one because, you know, what else was I to do? Um, in high school, I Just want to pat me on the back for I a mean, High school, I had a, um, I had a 3.9 GPA. I was really smart. I was really smart. I was a good cheater. So, so you know. And so uh, 3.9. Now, does it doesn't matter if you were at a failing high school in a state that ranked less than the nation in education? No, it doesn't matter. It was really good. So then I got a good scholarship and I went to college. And in uh, my first semester in college, I lost all of the scholarship. And uh, and I learned that I really wasn't all that smart. And um, so that that also happened. My, my freshman year by scholarships and I had to work my way through college. Uh, I, I'm going to share with you the good GPA, not working my GPA my freshman year because I, I want you to keep i them smart. Um, I had three different jobs when I was a freshman. Not like this guy's got three jobs, he's working hard. Like I had one, I lost it. You had another one, I lost it. The third one I kept for a little while. So I was really crushing it my freshman year in college then that summer after that year which you would think would really humble me and make me afraid to take on new challenges that summer uh, right for that summer i came home and i told my mom mom i'd like to spend my summer in a third world communist country where it's illegal to talk about your faith and regularly people across this country get arrested and tortured for doing so and because i've been so responsible with everything else i'm sure that I can hold down a job where I'm working for the government, but secretly I'm there to share my faith. I, I feel like my track record says I can do a good job of that. Um, so uh, I, I shared a little bit of this with my with my, my small group this past week. But but the idea is, what's so incredible to me now that I I thought I was being really faithful, but what's so incredible to me now is that my mom she she never blinked. Never blinked about the whole thing, not with me anyway. She asked me a lot of questions, and uh, she wanted to connect, understandably so, with the people that were over this and the people that were, that were going to be leading the trip, and she had some conversations with them. But I thought I was exhibiting bold faith, but now that I have children, I realized that my mom's faith was way bolder. To be willing to let this kid, and not just willing, but to be an encourager and to pray for me and, and, and to help me pack. I didn't know what I needed. You know, she's packing things. She's like, are you done packing? I was done a month before. And, uh, and then she went and bought me all the things that I really needed. And, uh, and helped me pack, put all those things together, asked me important questions. I mean, can you imagine, I can't imagine my little girl coming to me at, at 18, 19, and then saying, that's what I want to do. I want to go put my life at risk in a foreign country. You know, how, how about a sports car instead? I mean, like, that just scares me to death. But, but, but my mom, being so thankful to say, that's what God has called you to do, and I don't want to be so selfish as to say, no, stay home, stay close. And that was pretty incredible. Um, Giving God first fruits seems pretty challenging. Especially when it comes to my time and my money. And really giving Him the very first of everything that I have. But giving Him things like my family, my brother, my mom, my sister, my dad, my wife, my child. And saying they're yours first too. They're not just here for me to protect. They're not just here for me to enjoy. And you may want to put them in harm's way. And that seems crazy. But God, if that's what you want to do, that's what what I want to be about too. And that is a challenging thing. That's the hardest of all of these things that I'm trying to give first to God. So that's what I want to jump into today. I want to look at this idea of giving God our first fruits, our very best, when it comes to our family. Um, Ephesians chapter 6. You want to jump into Ephesians chapter 6. Let me give you a little bit of context for this passage. This passage, especially Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, pretty interesting stuff. Let me give you some context. This is that passage that women across the world adore, Uh, especially in Ephesians chapter 5. It's the one that says women should be quiet and submissive. And that's the one that women are like, would you just read that at my wedding? (laughs) Because that's what I want everyone to know that that I'm going to be about. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I feel like sometimes women are like uh, animal sacrifices in the Bible. Maybe I could get on board with that if that's something we had to do. But letting my husband do all the talking, that seems like a really bad idea. And so sometimes this, this passage is, is kind of challenging. You know, you would think there's no way that's really what God wanted, some of the stuff that I see in there. And 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 maybe some guy, some biblical author, he did good everywhere else, but here he just went kind of road and he had a challenging day with his wife. And so he was like, well, Let me throw this in there for eternity. And so this is this is a challenging part. But uh Pretty interesting, and, and look, this is not framing into the rest of what I have to say, but I just felt like if you are going to be here, and if you guys are going to kind of be like, Adam's boring, I'm going to read around in this chapter. Uh, I want you to have some context for, for what's happening here. What's pretty interesting is as you read Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, other than God's people, so the Israelites and then the church, all throughout the ancient world, uh, women are treated incredibly poorly. They're, they're pretty much property. They have very few rights. And unless you were royalty, you had very little say in what happened to you. Women had no rights. Children had no rights. They were just property of a father. And, and, and that's kind of how it went. A woman could be beaten to death if she cheated on her husband. But a man could put his wife away for divorce if she just displeased him. I mean, you see the imbalance of power there. And, and if you go read Ephesians 5 and 6, and we can dig into, into all that the rest of it, But but look as you read it. See how many times it says, Husbands, speak up for your wives. So many people aren't going to let them speak in public, and maybe you can't solve that whole problem. But let them speak to you, and then you can speak up for them. Because they have something valuable to say. Husbands, care for your wives. Husbands, make her shine. You know, that's your job. Husbands, love her as much as you love yourself. You two are one. You two are equal. Care deeply for her. Care deeply for your children. These people are not property. And you can begin to see how, no, this is not a passage that's trying to keep someone down. This is a passage telling men, no, just the opposite. You do not domineer over them. And, and and I think as we read this sometimes we sort of look at it like, oh, look how look what this does. No, in comparison to what everybody else was doing. And and, and even when you begin to read it in context, you realize this is God saying, people, women, children, men as well, they have extreme value. I think that's a pretty cool thing when you compare all of what, what all of these other ancient documents say about women and children, and then you go read the Bible, and you'll see the way that God cares for people. So it's pretty interesting stuff, and, and again, you'll you read through it, and still say, well, I hear what you're saying, but that doesn't explain this. And we could spend all day doing that, but, but I'd be preaching for like an hour and 45 minutes, and, uh, and so I don't think we have time for all of that today. But, but rich stuff. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read uh, the thing that I hate to do. We're going to read one verse. Um, so that I can feel better about me, I'm going to need you to promise that you'll go back and read all five and six. So that I can feel better about just reading one verse. So, if you'll uh, if you'll just sit there and be quiet, if you're them, great, thank you agree to that, so you guys all jump in and do that. Uh, but Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians chapter six, verse four. I told you a little bit about what happens before this. It's all that stuff talking about how to treat people in your family, and then you get to this passage. And it says fathers, but you should know that that in context they write fathers. If you have a a different translation, it may say parents, because this is probably more likely speaking to parents in general not just fathers. But it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's just one verse, so let's read it again. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Do this for me. Uh, consider this is this is just this fathers and children, but there's this wider this wider reach in this passage that tells us that these are principles that can apply to anyone towards anyone. And so, as we walk through some of this today, I want you to think about. Uh, Consider your role and your influence in your own family. Ancient society was pretty different. Family units tended to stay together. Your sphere of influence was your immediate family. Today, your sphere of influence may be incredibly different. Um, Some people live far from home. That was almost unheard of. In, in the ancient world. And so your family may not be blood at all. It may be people that you've come to connect with in the city that you live in. And, and that's your sphere of influence and the people that you are, are responsible for. And so don't get hung up, you know, on and, and certainly this applies to parents and your children, but this applies to you and the people that you influence. So consider that as we sort of walk through some of this. But the first thing he said is, before we even jump into what it looks like to give our, our, our family first to God. The first thing he says is pretty interesting. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Every time Molly starts crying, and, uh, and and I'll do it to Nate one day too, but they start crying, and I just kind of mock them. Yeah. You ever do that? You ever do Because I'm just, you know, but I really want, you know, but I really want it. You know, I just can't stand it, so I'm just going to mock her, you know, and then she's gonna, yeah, she's going to get frustrated, and it really only makes it worse, but it makes me feel better. And uh, Jess reminds me every time of this passage. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. <laughs> Nothing like speaking some truth to me in total context about things I should not be doing that I want to be doing. Um, but she reminds me of this all the time. Um, there's a recognition here that uh, if, you, if you're going to play a role in the spiritual development of anyone, then another huge role that you have cannot be exasperated and you cannot be about doing both of those, always antagonizing always exasperating, and then also be the kind of person that they come to when they when they need some help, when they have a challenge, and when they when they really want to grow in their faith in somebody that they want to confide in. Those two things just don't tend to go together. What this is kind of saying, and you can kind of take some clues from like the, the etymology of the word and like the word that it comes from and how people use that in ancient language. <laughs> But what he's kind of saying when he says exasperate is, is, is what he's saying is, very simply, don't intentionally make them mad. That's kind of the idea. Don't intentionally uh, uh, stir people up. That's what he's telling us not to do. And, and that's exactly what I'm doing sometimes, but not um, But don't be someone who intentionally says, I don't care. You think about what you do with your your spouse. You think about what you do with a friend who makes you mad. You think about what you may do with a sibling. And sometimes you're like, well, I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. And and look, guilty here. You saw how naturally that flowed out of my mouth. I mean, I'm guilty of that. But the idea is what I'm saying in that moment is I don't care at all if I make you mad. Now, if I'm speaking some truth and some wisdom and love and it makes you mad, it's a different thing. But if my whole intention is to get you mad because I don't care, he says, no, no, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. People, don't be about exasperating one another just for the heck of it. Then, after, after he reminds us that, hey, you can't be about this, then he begins to get this idea of first breath. and And he says... Uh, if we're going to invest in people, we can't in that, we can't exasperate them first. But our main investment in people, the investment that we're called to make, and sometimes this is a blurred line. I think, what am I really called to do for my children? What am I really called to do for people in my small group? You know, like what's my idea? What what should I be doing towards them? And this passage is going to make it clear. Our our main investment in them is to prepare to give them away. That's the big idea. I mean, it really aligns with parenting, right? You're not, you're not preparing your children to live with you forever. If you are, you'll one day regret it. <laughs>
1: because
0: they may take you up on it. But but you're preparing to give them away. You're preparing them to go do something that will not require you to stand right next to them. And our main preparation is certainly not preparing our kids for college, and it's not preparing our best friends to be the best friend that they can be to us. You ever, you ever like, you really wanted somebody to shop with you, but you didn't have a friend you liked to do that? So slowly you tried to mold a friend to, like, wanting to shop where you shop and wanting to do the things that you do. And you're thinking, you know, if I can just get you into the things that I'm into, then I can have somebody to do the things that I want to do with. Them. And we slowly, or, you know, your spouse... <laughs> And you want to like, you want to like, you know, get them into, my brother, I remember he bought some golf clubs for his wife, (laughs) because he wanted somebody to go golfing with him, and so now they just have a really nice set of women's golf clubs, almost unused. (laughs) Because he wanted somebody to do those things with him. And, and so. But our idea is, is not to, to make people who we want them to be. It's not to prepare them. And certainly we're preparing kids for college and we're trying to prepare them to be financially independent or prepare them for work and all those things. He says that's not the main job. Our main goal in the lives of people that we influence is to give them to God and say, God, these are, are your people And we want you to use them for your purpose. And so in as much as it is my job, I want to prepare them to serve you. And that is is our role. But why would we do that? Why would we do that? James 4.14 says this. It says, life is like a mist that appears and then vanishes. Why would we do it? Because everything else we do in this life just vanishes really quickly. I wanted to like... um, I wanted to get like a, some spray spray bottle, but I forgot. So, um, you know, like spray it in your face and, uh, and just let you see. You know, like at the end of the service, it'll all be dry. I tried this on my arm. You know, it does. It tries to be um, but, but you can see that, that even if I spray something directly in your face and a mist comes right there. You know, you ever been at the zoo on a hot day and you walk underneath those misting fans and, and for a moment it feels really good, but then like a moment later, you're frying again and you're dry again. Because even, even a heavy mist, it just goes away really quickly. You ever got in your car and, and it's so misty and everything's covered in water and then you've got a long drive to work and by the time you get there, it's all clean and clear. And he said, that's our lives. It's like a mist that just appears in the morning. It just appears for a moment and then it's gone. And so why would we spend our time preparing people rather than chiefly preparing them for things that happen on the earth and instead preparing them for things that happen for eternity? Well, that's why. Because this life is a mist and all the great things you can accomplish here that we might prepare you for here, they're just gone, just like that, no matter how great you are. And no matter how much you accomplish, and so why would we spend time in that? Because, because following God and serving Him, those are the things that last for eternity. And that's why we want to be about uh, our lives being about those things, and the people that we invest in, our investment to be about those things. So then, finally, it gets to this point. He says, "Here are two ways that we do. it. Here are two ways. Uh, very simply, it's real. It's put real easy in this passage." He says, here are two things that, that we're going to do to make that investment in people so that we are, so are, are preparing to give them to God. And that's our first, that's our chief aim with them. He says, the first thing that we're, we're going to do is we're going to train them. And this is kind of like the hands-on part. So if, you ever, if you ever took a, like a class that also had a lab, this is like the lab part. This is where, this is where you're, you're actually doing things alongside them. Our uh, second president, anybody know who that was? John yeah. Adams. There we go. We got and probably three other people know it, but you'll all know Oh, yeah, of course, John Adams. Um, I know one in 16, right? That's the ones that I know. Um, and then, like, the current one and the last one. Um, but uh, John Adams, he, uh, he, was, he, would, he would later become a second president. But before he was a president, he was sent as a commissioner to France, Uh, years before he became president and he took his so he sailed on the ship right across the ocean took his 10-year-old son with him took his 10-year-old son with him and and him he and his wife decided that that that's what they were that their son was going to go on this trip with him this was a six-month trip at best if everything worked out perfectly it was going to be a six-month trip imagine your your 10-year-old I can't even imagine this you know, 10-year-old boy traveling without mom, just with me, for six months on a ship. Sailing was hard. Ships sank. His so mom wasn't going to see him for half a year. Also, we were at war. It was winter. Like, those are all the reasons to talk yourself out of it. If the ship was caught, they may be taken back to Britain and and, hung as, and, and hang as traitors, tried and hung. I mean, these are all the reasons for a 10-year-old to not be on this journey. But mom and dad decided that he should go. That it would be necessary for him to spend time in the company of Ben Franklin. It would be necessary for him to spend the time in the company of French philosophers. It would be worthwhile for him to go and learn to speak French. And they said, for all the the things that may happen, we feel like these are things that are necessary uh, for the life of our child. And his parents allowed him to risk his life so he could prepare to do something great. By the way, he would go on to become the sixth president or something. Like that. And so they make this investment in the life of their child at some risk. That's the idea of training up a child in the way that they should go. They could have chosen to keep him safe, and they, and they could have chosen to do a lot of other things with him, but instead they said, we're going to prepare you for doing something great, even if that means you're in harm's way. There's a group of parents. They did this poll. Group of parents, and they're at, they ask them what's necessary to train a child to live out their faith. So just asking a bunch of people in the church, don't give them any context, and they just give them a whole bunch of things to choose from. And they say, what's necessary to train a child to live out their faith? And they name a few things. The top four of this. Number one is adequate discipline. If you have a discipline My dad would be loving that. <laughs> adequate discipline. The second one, uh, enroll in a Christian school. So that was pretty interesting. Enroll your kids in a Christian school. That'll help them live out their faith. The third one, homeschooling. Uh, again, I, it's crazy stuff, but some people are like, well, you know, if we're really going to, you know, school is, is a place where God knows what can happen out there, and, and so enroll them in Uh The next one, read your Bible with your children. Read your Bible with your children. Those are the kind of things that are necessary for a child to live out their faith. The smallest of, like, the six answers that they get out there, the smallest one that people respond to was this, was provide a godly example. It's not that people didn't find it to be important. They just thought something else. Everyone thought that something else was more important than providing a godly example. There was this famous archbishop He said this. He said, To give children good instruction, to give children good instruction, and a bad example, is beckoning them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them into hell. I mean, those are pretty strong words. But you get the idea. We're telling them how to do the right thing, but, but what they're doing is they're following us. Man, uh, training a child in the way that they should go is chiefly being an example to them. And and it's not just think about a friend whom you don't have much influence over the way maybe a parent does a child or as your children get older and your influence lessens, and, and, and you can't just discipline them there are a lot of things that you can't do but but if, if the greatest way that you can influence someone the greatest way that you can teach them to live out of their faith is to be an example now we can do that with anyone we don't have to we don't have to be someone who can speak into their life and hold things back from them right we don't have to have that kind of relationship now we can influence a lot of people and when we in front of those people love people who aren't lovable when we in front of them are a great wife, when we in front of them are a great husband, when we in front of them are sharing our faith ourselves, doing the things that we're asking them to do. When we set that example, that's how we're we're training them up to live out their faith. If we're going to train people to be passionate followers of Jesus. It's going to begin with our example. Chiefly and primarily our example. Uh, the second, the last thing he says in this passage, the last thing he says. Is, uh, is if we're going to train people to be passionate followers of Jesus, the next thing that we have to do is we have to discipline them. We have to discipline them. Again, I, I can see my dad just, that's right, you know. That's the thing that we're going to be about. And uh, he was a good guy. I painted this bad boy all the time. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that he would have said, God, yeah, I thing's important. But it's not really like that, that kind of discipline. I mean, if, if, you have a, if you have a friend who's not following Jesus, you can't spank him. You know? if, if, you know, it's not really that kind of idea of discipline. This idea of discipline that he's talking about is really just training and teaching through reinforcement. It's the idea of if my kid touches the hot stove... Uh, like, if it's not hot, I, I give them a very stern talking to. And if they do it again, maybe we spank them. And it's not because they're in trouble. It's because we're teaching them. You need to know that this comes with really bad consequences. And you may think the consequences of spanking, but, but the real bad consequences should have happened beyond and it burns your hand. And then we have way bigger problems. And so, so by, this, by this discipline, we're really just teaching and training. And when you're little, it looks one way. And when you're older, it looks another way. And and the older you get, this sort of discipline is just a real, honest conversation with someone. And he says, this is absolutely necessary. If we're really going to train someone up such that we can give them away and say, God, I've done all that I can. And I put them completely in your hands. You know, Molly has gotten in trouble for a lot of things. A lot of different things. Uh, And I've been justifiably frustrated with a whole lot of things. But, I don't know, almost never have I been bothered by the fact that that she's not really living according to God's instruction. I mean, in some ways, yes, but only in ways that most parents aren't. If I have a friend who, who claims to be a, a follower of Jesus who, 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 is, who is putting that, that on their mantle and saying that's what I'm about, but they're not living out their faith, I haven't said, you know what, something needs to change. I haven't thought about intervening in a way if they're not someone who shares their faith. Maybe they're a good person and they're living an okay life, but they're never about sharing their faith. I haven't said, you know what, we need some discipline. Because that's a hard place to be in. That's a hard thing to to say to someone. And and very seldom, very seldom am I thinking about, man, you know, it is wrong, it is wrong to not share my faith. You know, God disciplines us when we're not gospel sharers, God disciplines us when we're not good givers, God disciplines us when we don't invest our time in, in the church. Those are the kind of things God disciplines us for. Why why, why don't I think about about training my child up to do those same things? It's barely even in my framework for Molly to get in trouble for some of the same things that God might punish her for. It's it's barely within my framework to think about a friend of mine and say, this is the conversation that I should have with this person. Now, if they were on drugs, I'd be like, you know what, we've got to have a conversation but if it's, an, if it's one of those things that, that God says, this is very important to me, man, I, I'm not really, you know, that's not the kind of thing that, that just pushes me to have that conversation. And I look at myself and I wonder why. And I think it's because my goals for my relationship with people and my goals for my relationship with my children is often not the same as God's goals and His purpose for me. And, and it's not the same as His goals and His purpose for them. And so I'm a little bit misaligned there. Why don't those things bother me? It's because sometimes God and I have different values, and that's and that's a challenge for me. We, you and I, you and I, we were made for more. And if you've ever been through, like like month after month and week after week, you're like, it's Sunday and I'm going to live better. And then it's the next Sunday and nothing happened this week. I'm going to live better this week. And each week it feels like Sunday comes faster and faster. I'm going to tell you that we were made for more than just sort of riding Sunday to Sunday. Our faith should be more consequential than that. So I pray for us. And we're not, we're certainly not dropping everything else. But we're taking a step back from spilled cereal. And we're taking a step back from college exams. And we're taking a step back from dating problems. And we're taking a step back from broken curfews. And And all those problems that we're counseling people with and that we're walking people through, whether or not it should be or not. And we're taking a step back from all those things that we're we're trying to steer people in one way and another way. And we're taking a step back from that. And we're saying, how can I really do the greatest good for the people that I influence? How can I really do the greatest good for the people that I'm responsible for? And I pray that we would follow that with thinking about how we might train them, with thinking about how we might discipline them, and with thinking about all of those kinds of things, that one day, that one day as we do that, they might call us up, and not even recognizing the role that we played, but just thinking that they finally said yes to this big thing that God has called us to, uh, that God has called them to, but one day they might call us up and say, hey, you know what? I want to risk my life going around the world to share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus with people that don't know it, because we were made for more, and that's what we were made for—to be disciple makers, people that are leading other people to be passionate followers of Jesus. Amen. God, I um, I think that. I come before you, and I speak collectively in saying that we ask forgiveness for being so double-minded. And it is such a challenge in my own life, and certainly in the lives of the people that I invest in, to to think that that God, the first and best thing for them, is that I prepare to give them to you. God, I gotta pray that I do that. Pray that I, would, I pray that your goals for people will be my goals for people. And I'm certainly not you, and I certainly can't do the things that you can do. But God, I pray that my investment with them would be centered around what you want for them. And I pray that I would be someone who's absolutely and chiefly about making those disciples. With, with the people that are my friends, with the people that I go to church with, the people that are in my small group, and certainly within my own family. I pray that I would be, we would be preparing them to be your Father. Amen.
1: Let's stand as we continue to worship.
0: For sharing with us.